Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, as you walk on by, as you call my name, and as you walk away, don't you forget about me. <laughs> How could I forget about you? <laughs> well, I don't know. How could you? <laughs> I won't. <laughs> well, all I have to say to that is la, 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 la. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Anyway, in this episode, we are, as you could probably tell by the title, we're going to talk about The Breakfast Club. What a movie. <laughs> yeah. Before we say anything, I uh, I love this movie, and I don't know why. <laughs> like, I don't know why either. <laughs> I, I, I have a kind of weird attachment to it, and it'd been a long time since I'd seen it. We watched it about a week ago as of this recording. And, you know, it's on TV so much that you catch snippets of it here and there. And so I've seen parts of The Breakfast Club a lot over the last several years. But I like watching it all the way through, it might be like 10 years <laughs> since I actually Yeah, I think it's it. probably easily that for me, yeah. too. And so just sitting through it the whole way was... Um, I'm excited to talk about it, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because this is one of the first episodes that we've done where I'm not totally sure about all my thoughts about it yet. Well, I mean, obviously, that has come out in other episodes too, but this is the first one where I'm consciously going into it being like, I wonder what I think about this movie. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> this is the point, right? We get to go on a little exploration. Yeah. Hopefully you can convince me that there's something deeper going on here than, uh, <laughs> than I think. Yeah, I guess fair to point out that the teen genre is not really your genre is it true did you know that before you saw this or was it a revelation from this movie i think i think like uh to to actually like consciously say the teen genre is not my genre would probably have been this movie so you're saying maybe there is a value to it because it helped you realize true there we go so already i'm getting insights I just find some of the angst that goes on. Mm, interesting. Maybe, maybe you know, if we really dig into my psyche on that, it's because I don't like that angsty period of my own life. Sure, so. yeah. Yeah, there's an element of that, I think. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about. Before we get into it, I just want to uh, let all the listeners know that we, David and I, really appreciate anyone who listens to our bullshit at any given time. We've actually, in the last couple of weeks, gotten some really awesome emails from some listeners, and that's been a joy, because that's actually one of the big reasons David and I love to do this podcast, is eventually we want to start interacting with everyone and getting your thoughts, too. So if at any point you have any thoughts uh, on anything, content, feedback, anything, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. Uh, if you want, you can like our page on Facebook, just search Really True Fiction, and we're on there. You can subscribe on at least Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I think we're on maybe the Android one too, but I've never looked, so I don't know. Which is and 
Yeah, I, yeah, we're on the major ones, so. mm-hmm. and you can always stream us off from your computer on. Oh yes, uh, the that's Libsyn right. Site, right? So. Yeah, yes. Uh, what is it? Really true fiction. dot I think is the link. Uh, maybe one day we'll get a website. I'm sure it will happen. <laughs> I mean, we got <laughs> enough content out there now. We, <laughs> yeah. should, we could have one. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, last thing is just that if you do feel up to it, uh, leaving a rating and or review on. Apple Podcasts or iTunes is an awesome way for new people to find the show. So if you've at any point found any value in anything we're doing, uh, that would be really awesome and we'd really appreciate it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, The Breakfast Club. It's kind of hard to know where to start with this movie because it is kind of saturating of culture. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I guess probably there's a few listeners. I I mean, again, this is one where I'm like, you've never seen The Breakfast Club. But I mean, you know, my dad listens. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he hasn't seen it. So The Breakfast Club is a movie written and directed by John Hughes. It was like filmed and is set in 1984, but it was released in 1985. So same year as Back to the Future. So there's something, I guess, kind of special culturally about 1985 for movies anyway. And even that Bowling for... Do you, do you remember that Bowling for Soup song, 1985? Yes, I do. They, I don't know if you remember, but <laughs> oh, there is one of the lines. Bowling for Soup. Yeah. One of the lines is um, talks about Breakfast Club. So it's like, Breakfast Club, pretty in pink. Oh, even you're right. St. Elmo's fire. <laughs> and so Breakfast Club gets a shout out in that song. And of course, Breakfast Club itself has one of the most iconic... I mean, I we'll talk about this more at the end, but... Um, uh, maybe just for you to be thinking along the way, I think the connection between the Simple Minds song and Breakfast Club is like axiomatically they go together, right? <laughs> right? Like, right. Wh- is there a more iconic song to movie relationship? And there are some, like, there's a few that come to mind, but we'll talk about that later. But I just for you to be thinking about like other movies that have such a an iconic song attached to them, right? Right. Breakfast Club is about these five high school students who are in detention on a Saturday. So the five of them have to show up at seven in the morning. I think the day starts like 7 a.m. in a Saturday. And it's set in this, I think it's a fictional town of Shermer, Illinois. The only reason I, I say that I'm pretty sure it's fictional is because, <laughs> do, you, do you ever see the movie Dogma? Yes. Right? Yes. There's a scene when Bethany first meets Jay and Silent Bob, and they're in like Chicago, and she's like, what are you guys doing here? Why'd you come here from Jersey? And they're like, well, we want to try to find Shermer, Illinois, because we wanted to be those kids' dope dealers. <laughs> so, they, so Jay yes. and Silent Bob had seen Breakfast Club <laughs> and, 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 and had thought that it was a real place, and they wanted to be the weed <laughs> dealers, dealers in Shermer. Because there's a scene in Breakfast Club where they smoke weed, right? Right, and right. So, and then they're like, you know what we find out? There is no fucking Shermer, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a good little beginning tip to to the fact of how culturally resonant Breakfast Club has been for other movies and TV shows, kind of thing. Anyway, so these five students, and they all fit a stereotype, right? There's the the jock, the nerd, the popular girl, the kind of outcast, misfit, and the basket case. Yes, and, and then there's the I think he's the assistant principal. What's his name? Richard Vernon, who's the kind of like domineering authority yeah, and figure. Apparently, he has nothing better to do on a Saturday <laughs> than sit and monitor these children. Well, and funny, like no matter how angry he seems all the time, it kind of seems like he wants to be there making their lives worse. Like yes, that's actually like, his, that's what brings him joy. That's what he should yeah. be doing with his life. And then there's the janitor. So there's really like throughout the whole movie, there's like seven characters. 
And then, but like, then the, the parents, parents at the beginning, here, yeah. but they're not. Yeah, the parents are at the beginning and the end of the movie. But anyway, and then the plot of the movie is these five students who are nominally so different from each other have just basically like rambling conversations with each other for like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a there's an emotional roller coaster that we oh, go on. My with, God. Uh, like they hate each other, they love each other, they're friends, they're enemies. They're yeah, yeah, yeah. The just kind of a lot in- of angst going on. Oh here. yeah, and the ins and outs of high school student life and, and all the pressures. Yep. And, yeah. And then by the end of the movie, they have to write this essay. That's their assignment of the day is to write this essay on why. What is it? What do they think about themselves? Who, who am I? Who am I? Right. Yeah. 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 And basically, Brian, the nerd, writes it for all of them. And it's it's just iconic. The ending of it is just iconic. So we'll get to that later. Yeah. And then we're left with the beginning of the movie, the end of the movie. Is that Simple Mind song, Don't You Forget About Me, which is, I, I love it. I love that song. I, I've i learned how to play it on guitar. And I've played it a few open mic nights. And it's definitely a, 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 crowd, yeah. a crowd favorite. It's one of those songs that's so iconic that I didn't even know the name of the band. But everyone knows the song, right? Well, actually, for a long time, I thought it was by Tears for Fears. Right. The band that does Shout and um, Mad World originally. So the Donnie Darko connection is there. But no, nope. <laughs> it's just a band called Simple Minds. <laughs> that no one else has heard of. So anyway, the, um, the movie stars Paul Gleason as the assistant principal. I can't remember the janitor's actor's name. And then Judd Nelson is the misfit character, John Bender. Emilio Estevez is the jock, Andrew clark maybe i can't remember his last name and then anthony michael hall is the nerd brian um molly ringwald the darling of the 80s is claire the popular girl and then ali sheedy plays allison the basket case and uh yeah i mean that's the setup it's like such a simple premise hey? and there's not really like a plot i wouldn't say it's uh it's a conversational film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it is. I mean, like, what would be similar? It's like, I've never seen this movie, but I bet you, like, My Dinner with Andre is a similar type of movie where it's just conversation, right? Well, like uh, the the Before trilogy, so Before Sunset. Yes, yes, Rise, right, yes. Sunset, yeah, before yeah, Midnight, yeah. that would be a similar genre. And uh, you're right. It, this is a teen movie. Um, the only demarcation I would make is that I think that this is a... This is on the smarter end of the teen genre spectrum. Yes. If you, if you think of like the teen movies that started coming in the late 90s, early 2000s, like not another teen movie or right. <laughs> even American Pie. Those movies are, much, are, are entertaining. Far be it for me to castigate them too hard, but they're not nearly as smart. Well, and I mean, it's a teen movie. It's also like, I guess another word for that genre would be a coming of age story, right? Um, yes. Only in this particular case, we don't have a... It's not a long hero's journey where sure, we're yeah. given a day. Well, I mean, in a movie we've done before, Super Bad, which I think is the best coming of age movie in in the teen in that overlap of the teen and coming of age. I mean, there are other coming of like I think Stand by Me is probably a better movie right. than Super Bad, but it doesn't have the same kind of maybe high school feel like those kids. Anyway, we got split hairs on yeah. categories, right? <laughs> right. Okay, because. I want to figure out why I love this movie, why it, why it brings me joy. I don't even know. Like, maybe there's a difference there. Like, I, you probably noticed as we were watching it, there were just scenes that maybe aren't that funny, but I was laughing. Yeah, you, you really <laughs> were enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, just jump in. Where do you want to start? 
with this? Well, what, I think, think obviously one of the the themes that I find most interesting is the tension between teens and their parents. Mm. And, you know, Mother's Day recently occurred. And uh, yes. uh, one of my friends posted on Instagram a quote that says, eventually we have to stop blaming our parents. <laughs> and I love that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I think. Yeah. I guess one of the things that bothered me about this movie sure. is, and I feel like this was definitely a theme of in this time period, okay. was very much parents suck and they're like they're ruining (laughs) kids lives and it's parents neglect or abuse or or pampering or high expectations that Mm -hmm. that are making kids lives miserable and like frankly i just think kids lives at that age are miserable like because (laughs) your brain your brain is drowning in hormones your social circles have become the most important part of your life but on the flip side, you don't even know who you are, so you don't know how you fit in. And, right, 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 um, right. So I guess that annoys me, right? Okay, this, yeah. Because there was no... Like an overemphasis on this being the parents' fault? Yeah, and like the movie, maybe you can correct me if... Maybe I'm wrong and not seeing deeply enough into this movie, but I don't think that there's any grace given to parenting or anything. It's very <laughs> much like, look at these poor children who are weeping at the pain that mm. is caused to them by these by these evil adults and that's kind of like you know youth and revolt right it's this idea that like and i actually hate this culturally too this this elevation and worship of youth i think as you know someone who's entered as we call it in one podcast the golden years of my youth um i uh (laughs) (laughs) i look back and i'm like wow I was unstable. Like <laughs> I did not have That was all my fault. <laughs> not my parents' fault. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I think both of us have remarkably great parents. Mm-hmm. So, um there was obviously things that the kids in this film are going through that are tragic and awful and painful. Mm-hmm. But I guess that just rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, "Oh, you guys oh, yeah. are annoying." Fair enough. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the portrayals of the parents in this movie are pretty one-dimensional. Basically, all five of these kids have terrible parents for different reasons. And maybe if there was a sequel, like The Lunch Club, <laughs> it could be about the parents. <laughs> yeah. And like we'd get more depth. Because I think one of the, probably the saving grace of this movie is how the five teens start to learn about each other. Yes. And that kind of seeps into overturning their own prejudices and assumptions about each other and i think logically if you know if you were gonna make a movie again about this the lunch club it could be about the parents yeah it could be about establishing that kind of empathy they've started with each other towards their parents maybe a bit that would be really cool right yeah because i just feel like there's no there's no empathy no 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 it's it's all blame it's all like the emotions they're feeling are so they're tragic. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's a real tragedy okay, well, there. So here's how I think about it because I think you're right in your diagnosis is that the reason why that so stands out and is so obvious I think means that that wasn't the point of the movie. There had to be like a conscious intent to paint the one the parents that one dimensional for a different message that was coming out of this movie. The way I see Breakfast Club is kind of like how I see maybe Freud. I, th- I think we've talked about this concept before where it's like it's the beginning of something, but not necessarily the best of that category. Right. But without that right. thing, we wouldn't have that category gotcha. or at least not in its modern iteration. Right. So like Freud, I think, is not even close to the greatest psychologist ever. No. <laughs> but without him, we wouldn't have so much of psychology to build off of. 
kind of thing, right? Right. It's almost like that that like Peter Thiel's zero to one. Yes. Right. It's yeah. that jump is yeah. the significant jump, mm-hmm. and then after that you can build off of it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not a historical expert on this genre, but to my recollection, there wasn't a movie before Breakfast Club that was as famous as Breakfast Club got to be that was starting to deal with teen issues in school. Well, like, and yes, and I and I will say this: we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but the idea that something that society is ignoring is being addressed is mm-hmm. is really the purpose of art, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. We talked about this in South Park, and I think there was definitely a feeling or a view towards children, perhaps in the like sixties, seventies, eighties, that was very, you know dismissive sure uh and and not addressing the problems that they were facing i mean these guys would be gen x right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so, so like uh, gen x is notoriously <laughs> messed up here we are now entertaining right? us right? <laughs> and, well, and like and like the boomers were bad parents is mm. kind of the uh, <laughs> one of the motifs of this movie guess, yeah <laughs> mo- motifs of this movie and like culturally uh you read the fourth turning you know by right. strauss yeah, and, sure and others everyone's pretty on board with the idea that the boomers kind of lost their way in the 60s and mm-hmm. their youth and they never really recovered <laughs> the ability like they they're just very self-focused whereas like the silent generation and other generations were were much more involved and, and millennials to that for that matter mm. now are way more invested in their children and like the view of children changes like cycles yeah. right so you know in art we see things like the exorcist or you know rosemary's baby and these are the most popular films and that's like demonizing children mm-hmm. and like these evil little creatures yeah that's a good point right and then there's other periods where children are um, idealized Right and like elevated, and I mm-hmm. think maybe this is a shift from that. It's exactly, like, it's a reminder yeah. that these are people that they can hurt, they mm-hmm. can feel, and that we should take their, you know, take their uh, emotional and mental well-being seriously. Right, and I mean, in uh, I remember in sociology because that's what my degree is in. I did a presentation once on adoption, but used myself and my family because my family had gone through adoption as a kind of um, subject <laughs> of what to talk about. And I remember my... Case prof- study. Yeah, case yeah. study. And my professor at the time, because I was like, ah, I don't know, maybe I'm talking more psychology than sociology. And he was like, no, what you're proposing is called an autoethnography. Oh. And I, I guess maybe something like The Breakfast Club is a bit of maybe the first ever ethnography of high school students in the 80s. Yes. And yes. what their lives are like. And again, I, I feel like there's a, okay, what happens in the movie itself and Breakfast Club as culture are almost two completely distinct things. And I think the reason why it is generally considered a modern classic is because, and again, I don't know for sure, like I could be wrong about this, but you, like you mentioned movies of the 70s and then even other teen movies of the 80s that are coming to mind like Porky's or Revenge of the Nerds, they're all very, they're much more lurid, right? They're yes, more, they're more right. crude and offensive and they don't have the kind of like, they're, they're, nothing of those t- Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which has some of it maybe, those movies don't force you and maybe it's a little too ham-fisted in Breakfast Club. It's too on the nose. But those movies don't really force you to start reflecting deeper on what teens' lives are like in the 80s in a way that Breakfast Club kind of probably did. 
in a way that I don't know other movies did before it. And it's possible I'd have to look into this and think about it more, but isn't it? I think it's fairly possible that like Mean Girls is from that genre, and sure, yeah, and, like a lot of these classics of maybe our youth, yeah, um, classic, I quote unquote, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I could see that, like actually exploring. And there's so many in this genre now. Mm-hmm. Like, we could go on and on. Oh, about yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Like, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, is Mean Girls a better movie than Breakfast Club? I mean, I don't know what I would think about that one, but like, I think Superbad is a better movie than right. <laughs> Breakfast Club. Right. I think. Yeah. I recently saw Book Smart. Have you ever seen Book Smart? No. It's kind of, well, it's tagged as the female Superbad. Oh, it's okay. two f- friends, teen friends who are girls, and their trepidations throughout a day. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, kind of right. thing. Oh, that could, I, but I'll it's very smart. That. Yeah. It was uh, written by Olivia Wilde, I think, uh, oh, the actress. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And it's very smart. It's very caring. You're left with some softness, even though it's crude. To me, Book Smart is a better movie than Breakfast Club. But again, because it's part of like paying homage to your tradition, maybe if it's not Breakfast Club, it's a different movie that starts this kind of. <laughs> higher than average brow teen movie yeah maybe that's the job right, they will call right. it like we'll call it high brow but higher than average brow <laughs> but it just so happens in fact breakfast club was this movie well, for that, culture that's really one of the beautiful things about art right is is that it does build off itself and it's self-referential yeah. and like i mean even look at the great painters of the renaissance they were all self-referent they were referring mm-hmm. to one another all the time and yes. they were building off of it and like the tradition of art itself is is mm-hmm. to build we see this with television we see this with movies like the fact that we have the quality of these things that we have now is because there were pioneers exactly exactly so yeah i can agree with and that. if we think of movies as like academic sources <laughs> breakfast club is like top 10 most referenced movie right right like right. i don't know if you remember but the uh, the the pay the cultural payoff of the first episode ever of the tv show community is we're like the breakfast club yeah i mean abed right. even right. does a f- the full uh, cigarette monologue yeah <laughs> from Bender right right that episode, right, right? <laughs> and then you know jeff's like pretty sure that is the breakfast club because like, <laughs> they'd even referenced it or like we're like the breakfast club, you know <laughs> yeah so it's like similar to star wars if you don't know star wars you're not going to get a lot of the references in other movies about star wars right or even before that if you don't know the bible you're not going to get a lot of references in literature if you don't know breakfast club you're not going to get a lot of the references which because then the references orient you towards, oh, we're of this genre of young people trying to figure out their place in the world and with each other. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe the deepest importance, lasting importance of Breakfast Club is that this is an ice-breaking movie, ice-breaking story to start talking about those things. Now, obviously, you and I have wailed on how... Um, Maybe that's gone too far. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? But I think it's important that it happened kind of thing. Like, obviously, people who are 17, 18 are dealing with things in their lives. And it doesn't strike me as the most caring or compassionate to have a cultural attitude like Vernon does to these kids in the movie, right? Well, there's also a lot of analysis that's been done. Uh, this is actually more... I would say in the kind of religious sphere okay. than in the in another sphere. But I mean, one of the most interesting things, I guess, about you know the religious sphere of thinking is that it really does spend a lot of time thinking about people and culture and like what's happened to culture and where mm-hmm. culture is going. Right. And adolescence 
is not a traditional reality. Yeah. Right? You moved from childhood to adulthood. Ah, interesting. Um, That's very interesting. Uh, this is not a, uh, like, this is a new phenomenon. This is this is legitimately a new, in the last 110 years, phenomenon. Right. right? Like this category of life. This, this, exactly. <laughs> You're not having babies at 16 anymore. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. So this angst is also part of the extension of youth that mm. has occurred because of prosperity. Right. Like, if you're living in a village in Kenya, you're not questioning your, <laughs> you know, place in the world. Sure. You're getting food, right? Sure. Um, you're not stereotyped into one clique or another. Yeah. Well, well, well maybe you, might you are in, like, in, a, in a way worse way. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so this is something that I read about a lot in my twenties, um, is the idea of adolescence. And it was railed on as a big negative, right? Like it's this, um, this lost period of life that keeps extending. And I mean, you read, have you heard of Peter Pan syndrome? Oh yeah. Yeah. So like that, I've even been, uh, (laughs) once or twice accused of such a syndrome. (laughs) Uh, me too. Um, but like, so, so I guess that's interesting too because, for those who don't know, Peter Pan syndrome just being like basically aging chronologically, but not wanting to age, and primarily males, like <laughs> in, in in the mature sense, yeah, as well. like want to hold on to your childhood. Yeah, we don't want to grow up and you know have homes and families and things right. like that. That's the idea. Still have the same attachment to video games at age thirty as we did at age twelve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then there are a lot of those. So I think that's another interesting point to be made is. One of the reasons Breakfast Club's analysis of teen years is so new and mm. iconic is because it didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, before, not before the eighties. Ah, well, you know, I'd say before the Boomers, there were there wasn't an adolescence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in this, in the traditional, or no, in the modern sense. Yeah, and by the time you get to. 1985, the year that Breakfast Club comes out, John Hughes, the guy who wrote and directed it, would have probably been in like earliest his 30s, maybe his 40s, right? I I don't know for sure. This is look-upable. But that means that he's older, so he's actually lived through the 60s and the 70s. So he has experience of what it's like to be an adolescent in that era. And now, as an adult, getting to remember and reflect on the things that maybe he thought were overlooked, yeah. In in his own life, right? Like, well, this is why great artists, and I mean, you know, there's a few <laughs> things to say maybe about John Hughes, but nevertheless, I mean, he did Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He did Breakfast Club. He did, pretty, uh, what was it, 16 Candles, a movie a year before with Ron. So, he, like, he was the kind of guru of the 80s, of the teen Higher than average. He, he created this. He is, yeah, he is yeah. the founder. And so, seeing as he lived through the 60s and 70s, is an adult in the 80s making these movies now this is why i feel pretty confident in saying like th- this is just a, this was an unrecognized f- social phenomenon before him yeah that he that he highlighted i agree yeah. i agree i think probably that's why it has stuck around like it's still one of those movies from the 80s like other than star wars or back to the future uh, or Indiana Jones, which are more like action adventure movies. To me, Breakfast Club is top ten cultural stick arounds from the nineteen eighties. You know, like it's just still one that's around. Yeah, <laughs> like it's still a popular movie on the streaming sites. And that's so funny because my first exposure to Emilio Estevez was from the Mighty Ducks movies because right. <laughs> he's Coach yes. Bombay. Yes, and yet he was obviously already really well known before then because of Breakfast Club. And it's, I don't know, like I always. 
I always think it's funny when I have an attachment to an actor or an actress based on some significant role from my youth, and then I grow up and realize that they're famous for like probably something else. Yeah. <laughs> Although no, Mighty Ducks was pretty famous. It's like kind but... of a, it's a light bulb moment. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure more of this will come out as we talk, but I feel like we should get into the, the specifics of the kids. So I thought maybe we could start with Bender. <laughs> Okay, because he has the most lines. Yes, right. Yep. He's he's by far the most talkative. He is kind of, of the, the main character. Yeah. So like, just to set the stage again for you know my dad who hasn't <laughs> seen Breakfast Club. <laughs> um, and maybe he has. We don't Bender know. is the misfit. He's the outcast. The beginning of this movie is very clear of the stereotypes and the kind of um, like in my school I remember you, you had the you had the jocks, but like we kind of called jocks more like the preps, so because they were people who played sports but also wore really nice clothes and thought they were better than everybody else right you know and then there were um the rednecks the skids who were like uh the people who did drugs and rode skateboards and did the majority of the vandalism around town right, <laughs> right. uh then there were like obviously there were the nerds there were the biker like the mountain bikers there were um so like just these lazy categorizations that as you're a growing young person help orient you towards the Oh, here's what here's what this person might be able to do for my status or not. Here, here's <laughs> kind of here's thing, my right? group. Here's yeah, my identity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Here's my own little mini hierarchy that I get yeah. to play around in. Yeah. So Bender is the outcast, and Breakfast Club just doesn't work without him. The story, right? Because he's actually the ignition to drawing out from everybody else they're more honest thoughts. One of the things that's so interesting about Breakfast Club is like the first kind of act of the movie, I wa- or like the first 30 minutes, I'm like, wait a minute, why do I love this movie? This seems really boring, <laughs> right? Or like <laughs> right. predictable. I yes. think you even you even had a comment at near like the first 20 minutes, just like, oh, this is just so stereotypical. Yeah. <laughs> right? I was yeah. like, you're right, it is. Well, well, Bender has this ability to pointing out the absurdities and the incongruencies of the world they are told to care about. So if you can remember back to being, well, I don't know, whatever age it was, and the, and the different adult or authority figures in your life, like, go to school, get a job, you know, whatever. And I mean, we grew up in, in the era after these, well, maybe an era and a half after these kids in the movie. And so there was a little bit even more leeway towards our self-esteem. Yes, <laughs> right. Well. Yeah. But I still remember, like, you know, like, here's what you got to do. And when you're young, you don't really have a reason to say that the people who you trust and the adult figures are wrong. And so I think there's an interesting role Bender's playing here where he is pointing out to the other four, whether they know it or not, that they're kind of being lied to, right? But what was interesting is that Bender's problem, and this would be going against something your mom said, is he's pointing out that these absurdities and incongruities, but he's not doing it in love. No. Right? He's no. doing it in, I guess, like... Cynical bitterness. And and mocking. Yes. Right? Like, you're being fooled, and you're an idiot because you're being fooled. <laughs> and I'm... Oh, this is Bender's problem, is like a high degree of arrogance be, that is bred by insecurity. Oh, yeah. Right? And I yeah. mean... This, I will give this movie this. It does a great job of showing that uncovering the insecurities of each of the characters mm-hmm. and making us all realize that maybe there's these are insecurities that we all need to deal with in ourselves, <laughs> yeah, right? to, to greater or lesser degrees. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and so like I, I think the value he is playing in the kind of subconsciousnesses of the other four and potentially us as the audience is that he is starting to turn over some of the stones that no one thought were worth turning over before that. And that was like the impression I was getting from watching is like, oh man, like, yeah, there is this kind of type of person I remember from my youth who would be like, well, you know, everyone said this about this, but what if it's not the case? What if they're just lying to you? And it was a little younger than 18, I think, but I remember maybe age like 10 or 11 starting to think like, but why would anyone do that to me? Right? Like, right. why would that ever be something? And it's like, it's not so much, I'm glad you brought up the word insecurity. It's not so much adults or authority figures are themselves just trying to intentionally deceive young people. There are probably some like that, but I think the majority of people who might fall into this category are simply themselves unsure about something, right? The the great lie of life is that as soon as you become an adult, you learn everything about the world and, yeah. you, know, and you know what to do. That is the great, right? Well, it's like, and I mean, some of the, the quotes that people like the most is like, I, I grew up and I still have no idea what I'm doing, right? And, and there was this kind of, maybe this great lie, I don't even want to call it a lie, maybe a great kind of assumption that because adults have to be in charge of kids, they have to project this air of knowledge about the world, <laughs> right? Well, I think... If you think about it just as psychological development, when kids are little, you need to give them that security. You would mm, actually be yeah. a really bad parent exactly, if, you, yeah. if you're just like, well, I don't know, or there's there's no way of knowing, and you know, nothing makes sense, ah, and I can't explain anything yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah. right? And so transitioning, it's really a transition problem. And if parents never had to do that before because there was no such thing as adolescence before, they wouldn't know... Yeah, how do I deal with this? <laughs> like, like the old same myths and motifs would have been fine for 16-year-olds in previous generations because they're already adults having to deal with the world now anyway. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I mean, like real life has smacked them in the face. And yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, David Foster Wallace, you know, there's no atheists in adult life, right? Like, <laughs> like you've got to believe in something. You got to, yeah. you have to build some kind of paradigm with which to navigate the world. Like if, if the world is an ocean, right, you need a ship. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a ship, you can't swim forever. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah. And so Bender's great line, I'm just being honest, when he's called out by Andrew, especially on being mean to the other kids or other teens, like this is classic rationalization. I kind of remember this type of person who's just like basically a mood killer, (laughs) right? Everyone's happy about something and they're just like, well, it's a lie. And again, it's like half of what you need, right? So Bender's half of what everyone needs. And I think the great resolution of the movie is they figure out the other half with each other in a kind of cheesy way, but whatever. Yeah, I I just see him as the great ignition of being able to even begin to start asking these questions. And, And the thing is, you'll notice with the other four, like their insecurities are all there. But they would, they're not want, they don't even think to talk about them. Right? I think, I think part of it is, is like you said, Bender is kind of the catalyst, let's mm-hmm. say, for for all of this self discovery. And interestingly enough, the reason that he is the catalyst is because he's been through so much suffering yeah. that he can't he can't lie to himself about the world, mm-hmm. right? He he knows that there is just pain. Well, because at the bottom of it for him, if you think about it, Andrew and Claire and Brian's suffering that comes from their poor relationships with their parents is very psychological, right? Like Claire's is 
she has to kind of pick which parent she likes more in the divorce. Andrew's just got this, both Andrew and Brian have this intense pressure on their either athletic or academic pursuits, but it's kind of like more like manipulation. But Bender gets physically abused. Yes. And I think that there is a categorical difference there in terms of how you react to the world. Um, that scene where he shows his cigarette burn on his arm. I don't know, but maybe it's there's... a cigar, I think. Is it a cigar? Because it's okay. too big. Yeah, yeah so it's yeah. even worse than a... Well, well. <laughs> who knows? It's bigger. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is a culture before this movie that's like, yeah, that's kind of what parents get to do to their kids if they want, <laughs> right? And this movie pointing out, like, look how fucked up Bender is. Do you really want to be the kind of parent who treats him like this, <laughs> right? And uh, we even learn later that, you know, he gets his mom gets beat up by his dad like there's just obviously the tragedy of bender runs deeper than him way deeper yeah Yeah. like that's a hugely important component to understanding why the assistant principal vernon's take is so myopic and the the myopia breeds vernon's opinions of the kids are just self-fulfilling prophecies he thinks bender's bad so that makes bender act bad without a single this is a great insight of this movie like vernon has no interest in getting more insight into their lives he just sees them in the in the hours they're at school he sees what they do he hears the rumors and that's what they are in their totality right and that impoverished view of a person gives no expansion of their horizons in a way that like i don't know if you remember but like a good teacher or a good counselor or a good adult figure in your life can look at bender and be like look this is not what you are there's a great song by um uh snow patrol called this isn't everything you are and it's all about this motif of all of the terrible things that you think or about yourself or that you've done, those aren't everything you are. Yeah. There's more. And Bender, has, it, it seems from the movie, has never had anyone saying to him, this isn't everything you are. And he's embraced that identity of it. Like that pain is his identity. That yeah, yeah, yeah. that cynicism towards the world, the you know, kind of the mockery of the naivety of mm-hmm. others. But it's he's horribly myopic too. I like, know, I know, I, I know. Like he thinks that that's all there is. Yeah. And there's no optimism or hope. He's like, well, and and yet he's. It's interesting because he's still a kid. Mm-hmm. Right, and and he's still hurting. Well, because again, you start to see how he's becoming Vernon in a sense. Obviously, they're completely different social stations in life. But Vernon, he looks like he's probably early to mid fifties. So in 1985, that would have meant he probably served in Vietnam, if not, uh, he was a young person during yeah. Vietnam, and he's definitely got this more martial presence to himself dismissive martial presence of like the unthinking military person almost although he doesn't authority for authority's sake exactly and because of that he feels an intense superiority over these kids and even over the janitor right and bender is channeling that even though he hates vernon he's channeling that same superiority over the other four kids in that I know the way the world is and your little princess or your you you basically the four of you have fake lives and fake problems and I have real problems. Well, let's see how Bender mocks Brian's home life. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, "Oh, everything's perfect for you and your parents love each other and you go fishing yeah. and you get your homework exactly. done." Exactly. Yeah. And like, okay, so you know what? You're where you're warming me up to some of the insights in this movie. <laughs> oh, okay. But um one of the things I guess that I like 
now now upon reflection is Bender looks a bit like an idiot yeah. too because he doesn't understand the pain of he doesn't understand that existential pain knows no circumstance. Exactly. Right? Right. It's, uh, it's for- forged in different kinds of fires, but mm-hmm. it's always forged. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just as an aside, <laughs> to be in a similar way to the humor I get out of the interactions between Han Solo and C-3PO in Star Wars, the humor of the interactions between Brian and, and John Bender in this movie are are the best. Like they're the funniest parts of the movie yes. is yes. when Brian, he's just trying to be helpful. <laughs> like He's yeah. just trying to be sincere or answer a real question. And he just doesn't understand that Bender's being sarcastic. And so then Bender like lays into him verbally for being so stupid. And Brian's like, what did I do? Yeah. I just, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, as the audience, though, I almost feel like I, I side with Bender a little bit in his altercations with Brian because I'm like, Brian, how the hell do you take any of this seriously? He's obviously I feel, obviously I feel such an affinity for Brian, <laughs> yeah, though, right? to be honest, because I'm like, I feel like that was me to some degree because homeschooled, you know, right. church parents you know mm-hmm. you you have a view of the world that is incredibly narrow mm-hmm. but it's what you believe yeah. and 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 there's also that cynicism just doesn't exist yeah so you're there's a level of um sincerity that the world mocks yeah people mock sincerity a lot sure and i i like him because you know what at the end of the day i think he's my favorite character because right. he's the one that's like i would never do that yeah like he he's the least attached to these constructs well, the, I of, guess, of the, the high school. Sure, yeah. I think the great thing about Brian, his growth in this day, is that he goes from naive sincerity to reflected sincerity. All five of them kind of do. But he does it most overtly because he is... Because he's also he's, the smartest. Well, but he's also most obviously the most naive. <laughs> Yes, at the beginning, yeah. right? Like no, he's, yeah. it's it's because again they're playing with some of these archetypal motifs of young people. He's so out to lunch. Like he's got no street smarts, if you will. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, and I think that's why I no, felt no. an affinity to him. Because exactly. At his age, I didn't. Mm. Right. So his change is most obvious. Yes. I think of the five of them, which is enjoyable. But I, again, because I just I love so much of the humor. Uh, the weird humor in this movie, and it mostly comes from Brian. I think he's actually also the funniest character in the movie, uh, more than half the time accidentally. Yes, yes. <laughs> which is like you do have some sympathy for him, but the beauty of him is that he grows into it. That where his like humor could be more intentional, you know, and it's yeah. because of his sincerity. I mean, maybe we'll talk about all five of them, their revelation moments together, because they're kind of all related. So, but his struggle is with his parents' expectations academically, and. It's a little different, but I can tell you from having taught in Korea, this is a real phenomenon for young people. (laughs) And I mean, Brian in the movie, he's supposed to be, what, 17 or 18. But I mean, I've seen nine-year-olds have the kind of same anxieties about their academic performance. Now, Korea is a little bit of a different situation in that it's so... Well, the whole culture is is very much performance based, well, and right? they just they just have a different economic default in the sense that they don't have an overwhelming amount of natural resources in South Korea, and they have a population of fifty million people in a country the geographic size of smaller than Alberta. So, like their economy is very much based on service and tech, 
And really, the, their their labor force is their resource. Exactly. And they need it to be mm-hmm. as you know capable and competent as possible. So if you can imagine, instead of a resource pool of 100 people to pick the best three, you could have a resource pool of 3,000 people to pick the best three, which obviously adds anxiety onto educational and personal life for these yeah. people. I mean, it's just it's so crazy. Like, I remember the year I did grade seven, like talking to these 13, 14-year-olds who are having just like panic attacks over getting admitted into the right high schools right (laughs) right like never mind universities like if you don't even get into the right high school then you're like you're screwed yeah right so anyway i'm just saying i i come into this having some sympathy for brian in his struggle with his parents so what i love at the beginning of the movie he's always chiming in but is always ignored right yeah no one no one really um I liked uh, Bender's breakdown of the fact that uh, that Brian and Claire were actually very similar Mm. in their choices of activities, not in the kind of activity, but in the status that was conveyed by that activity and the feeling of belonging. Yeah. And she's like, well, my clubs are different. Well, not really. Right. Mm -hmm. They're hanging out with people that you have similar interests with. Mm-hmm. And and there's a there's you know a hierarchy there and there's a a mutual understanding that this those is... are academic clubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was a cool insight because I know you know people often delineate a distinction between those things and really they're just the same social phenomenon played out in different contexts. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you if you can go to the next higher order level of thinking. It's like things that are different become the same. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now, it's interesting, again, I mean, this is a point about Bender, and maybe I don't even know exactly what I think. It's like, it's interesting that Bender is able to get at these truths, but I don't even know if he really thinks about it that way. It's just that he's, because he's trying to humiliate them, he's being honest. Like, there is an element of honesty to him, but it's so mean and so caustic. It just it doesn't feel even close to the right way to do it, but it is realistic in how maybe a damaged 17-year-old would do it. I think he's highly intuitive. And mm. in being highly intuitive, he is able to quickly cut to the core of things. Yes. And and I mean we all know these people who like they they have sharp tongues, right? They're they're it's because their minds are quick, but their focus is on tearing down Mm -hmm. so their insights are almost always aggressively hurtful right even though they are still insights yeah interesting that's just an interesting phenomenon hey yeah okay because i don't think he's thoughtful no i think he's intuitive yeah and those are two very different things and and the thoughtfulness that comes with the intuition is uh maturing yes which presumably he does i mean i think intuition is a huge gift Mm -hmm. i just think that if it's not paired with thoughtfulness then it's really just no that's interesting that you bring that up because i've always scored pretty high in intuition in personality tests and that kind of thing well that's pretty obvious from your sense of humor (laughs) you're you're quick right (laughs) (laughs) however like i was never as mean as bender I, i i definitely know that i think i had the right kind of parenting to never actually be that mean but i do realize that i could be as mean as him if i wanted to be right right like i definitely have the gift of uh, i say sometimes and it's happened a few times when i've in my life when i've drank too much my tongue does have the ability to split into a fork and become venomous to other people mm-hmm. if i so choose right it's never something i've really struggled with but it's there 
And I think maybe if you put someone like me in a situation like Bender's growing up, that would be how I would lash out. Because I've always been pretty verbally gifted. And because the intuition, you find other people's weak spots. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I never really... That aspect of Bender I do relate to, mm-hmm. even though I never thought about it like that. So thanks for bringing it up. That's just another good thing to be aware of in maybe a growing young person is, well, how do you develop that thoughtfulness and maturity for them while they're also themselves very talented intuitionally? Right, exactly. And verbally that they can... I remember I had a friend at work once and I thought this was a really deep compliment I gave her where I was like, one of the things I like about you, maybe very deeply I like about you, is that you have the capacity to be mean and you choose not to be. Right, (laughs) right. Well, it's like Jordan Peterson's idea of like a dangerous man Mm. who can control that dangerousness about himself is probably the the most noble and the great insight of breakfast club i guess is that that's what bender lacks yes at this stage in his life for sure and so then okay yeah i mean all the great things about brian i'm just trying to think about this on the fly even though he's kind of a victim to bender and even claire and andrew in different ways that they make fun of him i'm not sympathetic really to him i mean i'm sympathetic from the parent angle but not from the other kid angle because i'm just like for for a good like half of the movie i'm like brian you are a fucking idiot like, how are you letting, <laughs> it's funny, like, it's the humor of the movie, but it's like, how are you letting these people just so obviously be sarcastic for you and you don't notice that, right? But I guess what I love about his transformation is that line like you brought up earlier, so us the weirdos are better people than you. Brian kind of lives in this fantasy land that everybody else has the same ambition as him, and that's actually part of his struggle is to be better than them in the things that he, but it's like, well, okay, maybe you're not in the math club or maybe you're not in the physics club, but that's just because you're not smart enough. You would want to be there. Right. <laughs> right. Well, th- this is, this is the measurement by which people yeah. value is determined and I'm winning at the, by this measurement, but I can't do, but I'm not the best. Yeah. But I can't do whatever um, shop. Yeah. So, and that's the humiliation. And, and I actually love love his journey mm. just as if we think yeah. about it from a psychological perspective yeah, me too, because actually. you know how many of us have been on that journey where mm. you have to come to the you know you have to confront your own finite self mm-hmm. and realize that oh strengths and weaknesses <laughs> um you know we often try to hide our weaknesses and i think that's a huge flaw mm-hmm. um in even how our society functions is that we we're not authentic about Mm-hmm. The suffering and and pain and and terror mm-hmm. of how fragile even our identities are because the things that we care about and we the things we attach our identity to identities to are so fragile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And therefore, there's this there's the insecurity. His insecurity is that he defines himself by this, mm-hmm. and suddenly reality has slapped him in the face and says, <laughs> "Your your definition of yourself doesn't work." Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, the ending is kind of uplifting for all of them, but I feel it's the most uplifting for Brian. And I think it's because, it seems like, operationally, Brian is kind of, like, blind to status in the high school setting, right? Like, he doesn't, it's just not even, it's not even that he doesn't like it, it's just he doesn't even think about it in the first place. It's just not something that would occur to him to matter to other people, probably because he's been so instilled with the idea of, academic pursuit get a good job like be a important person in the world kind of thing 
which again has its own statuses, but he's actually still so involved in the academic side of things that he even, like the reason he's in detention is because he brought a gun to school for potentially committing suicide because he got an F in, in home ec or woodworking or whatever. Yeah, yeah, shop, shop. <laughs> shop, yeah. right? It's just like, it's crazy to think about, but it also lends a huge insight into what he's going through. Well, and there's the, uh, the teen angst, mm, right? Yeah. It's like my life and... I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Okay. There was a time in university, so it I took me longer to learn this maybe than it should have. Mm. But I remember walking with one of my buddies from uh, French when I got my final French grade, right. and it was a B minus. Mm. Which, um, and I remember saying to him, I, "I'm doomed to a life of mediocrity." Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, and I, you're probably only half joking. No, I no, I wasn't joking. Yeah. Like I, I felt like this was like catastrophic for me because I had attached so much value to this system, mm, and yes. the system was if you don't get the right grades and you don't get into the right schools and if you don't get the right get into the right schools, you don't have the status. And now I've I've come to you know the realization. This is again why I'm like we glorify these years of torment and, and hormonal pain. Mm. And like when you can get through that and find some peace uh, and get to know yourself maybe in, in reality as opposed to as a concept, mm-hmm. life can be a lot better. Yeah, 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 I agree. And so I guess with him, it's that awesome scene after the four of them are stoned sitting around and Allison's not, but she's, they're all, the five of them are talking to each other. They're like actually kind of having some breakthroughs with each other in terms of how they are as people. Basically the question of, well, will we be friends on Monday after they've gone through this kind of like existential <laughs> rigmarole with each other and they're stoned. So there's a little bit of that going on. And John and Andrew and Claire, I'll say probably not. We probably won't be because the three of them are admitting in a sense to how stuck they are in their roles and how how they just couldn't take the abuse from their friends if they were seen with someone like Brian. And But Brian and Allison are the ones who say, yeah, we would. And so then Brian has this insight where he's like, not only do you not want what I want, but I'm a better person than you because I'm willing to overcome those things that I didn't even know existed <laughs> until today. And because of that, he's the catalyst for the positive side of things, it seems to me, where he's the one who's able to have the insight of, oh my gosh, we've had this conversation today where we're realizing that our anxieties are actually so similar. Like in that way that Bender points out negatively. We're seeing the humanity in one another. Yeah, it's not us exactly. versus them anymore. It's these definitions mm-hmm. are clouding our openness to one another. And and it seems to me like his verbalizing of that, like we're bet like me and Allison are better people than you because we're willing to overcome these superficial differences and you're not. Like, I think that that kind of jars the other three into a better trajectory. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know? and that's why I really like Brian, because, mm-hmm. and also I'll, I'll say this, like, he's the highest potential of anyone there, not not just on a, like, oh, life trajectory mm-hmm. will be better, but he is obviously the most thoughtful and wise mm-hmm. person in the group. Maybe yeah. he's not, he's the, also the most naive, Yeah, but his insights mm-hmm. into even... Like he is the only one who can transcend the social circle, yeah, and say, "Oh, like this is bullshit, yeah, and you're bullshit." Well, for I think thinking it matters, yeah. All five of them have self-discovery by the end, but he's got the deepest. It feels like. Well, and I think he's the catalyst for the self-discovery, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 
which is so awesome. Again, maybe why? Or he is the one that can articulate the discovery they need to have. Mm-hmm. The catalyst is Bender, but the articulation is yeah. Brian. And and it, maybe it's so awesome in the Breakfast Clubian way is because for the first half to two-thirds of the movie, he would be the least likely, you would think, to be able to do that because he's the most naive. Yeah, and that's <laughs> the interesting... There's a, a distinction I'd like, I guess, maybe, and now I feel like I'm being maybe a little bit like because I feel the most attached to him on a like the experiential <laughs> level. Sure, well, then it makes sense. Um, but the reality is they they've put value in wittiness mm-hmm. and yeah. in um, and in you know being you know tough. And he doesn't have those things, so he's mocked. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, he's he is the better person. Yeah, on both a moral and probably a future trajectory. Mm-hmm position well because okay like i'm trying to so brian the first act of the movie he gets mocked by bender and andrew and claire and he's probably original brian is like oh did i say something stupid was i wrong was i incorrect because he's assuming that their mocking of him is in the realm of the game he's playing mentally which is sincerity and so the moment he realizes that a lot of what those three especially are doing is affectation for somebody else based on it's posturing posturing and perception it's like a breakthrough moment for him because he's like well that's fucking stupid that's gonna get you nowhere but also he's realizing that he's kind of doing that too with his f yes in shop class and he's realizing that the the significance he's attaching to that mm-hmm. is the same as the significance yeah. they're attaching to their social group. Maybe not the same in emphasis, but, but the, the same, same in, in kind. In quality, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. That's why I think he's got arguably the deepest self-discoveries because he sees the bullshit in the others and that seeing of that also sees why he's how where he's doing it too, <laughs> right? I, I actually, my favorite of the five is actually Allison, but... He's my second favorite. <laughs> I'm, so. I'm, I'm interested to find out why. I <laughs> like. I don't hate her or anything, but she she was the one that bugged me the most. Okay, interesting. Well, we'll do her last. The character of the five, I actually have the least to kind of say about. Maybe it's because you and I would have the least personal connection. Was is Claire, who's the popular pretty girl? Things I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> right yes yes uh so i i did lend as much empathy as i could but I, i'm sure there would just be females who would have a better insight into what she might be struggling with than you and i would right for sure but the things i did sympathize with her for or feel is when she opens up a bit about being kind of a pawn in her parents squabble so again like she's being used or she feels like she's being used by her parents in their divorce. It's like, well, which one are you going to pick? Who do you love more kind of thing, if, if you put it as most stark, which is really shitty. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and then the other note I made is her, a line I really like, she's like, I have just as many feelings as you do. Why do you get to trounce on mine and I don't even get to bring up yours kind of thing? She says that to Bender. It's like, yeah, you hurt deep, but that doesn't mean, even if your hurts are more physical, maybe, that doesn't mean I don't have feelings too. Because that is part of Bender's weakness is he treats the other four like, not that they're feeling. He has a superiority, a victimized, a victim superiority exactly, complex. Exactly. He, has a, he has a victim mentality. And she's starting to realize, oh my gosh, maybe that doesn't happen to me, but I still have to do these legitimate problems. And so those are the two like kind of big things about her. And then obviously 
she's feeling stuck as the popular person. Oh, and then also the other thing I noticed about her that I really liked is when Bender is trying to tease Brian about being a virgin and Brian is insecure about this, so he doesn't want Claire to know. And Claire says, I think it's okay if a guy's a virgin, which is like obviously on the surface fine, <laughs> but yeah. but it is an anxiety, right, in high school. Like I remember this kind of like, oh, have you slept with anyone yet? Or... um and especially because I played hockey, so you yeah. don't always get the kindest yeah. guys in that <laughs> scenario, right? And I, I actually even remember being teased about this by <laughs> a manager one time. <laughs> he wasn't the greatest manager I've ever well, had. We've in all high had school. jobs where I <laughs> yeah. got teased about it in all yeah. of my jobs, and but we were roofing. Like, yeah. And this is obviously a different era, but I remember one of the other employees where I worked, who's a, a female, a couple of years older than me, was like, I think it's fine if a guy's a virgin. That's not a big deal. And it's just like, it's like a really poignant and timely kindness that Claire pays to Brian in that moment. I think there's, I, I've had a similar, uh, mm-hmm. so there was a, and you know, looking back on it, she seemed so much older and wiser, but she was probably <laughs> like 18 or 19 years old. But I, when I first worked at a golf course, okay. there was, and this, how old were you? I would have been 16. Okay. Yeah. And I was, this is my first real job. I'm a homeschooled kid. I'm right. very shy. Yeah. She's an attractive young woman. <laughs> and all of the guys are always teasing me and like, yeah, right. You know, it's like, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm at the very bottom of the social hierarchy in this world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which was funny. It was very similar to Brian, like in that sense. I was also naive about yeah, everything. Right. I never yeah, drank yeah, yeah. a beer. I was like, and, I remember her, she was always kind to me and always like, don't worry about these mm-hmm. guys. Like, And in retrospect, that's because she understood the world really well. And she's like, you're going to be fine. And these guys who are, you know, yeah. the things that they're going after you for are not going to matter mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah. Of the five, again, she's the one I, I just kind of understand the least. So I don't know if you had, what were your thoughts on Claire in her journey through this? Well, having also never been a popular girl, um, (laughs) I don't know, like, it is a world that I I would say I don't really understand. Mm. Uh, If I had to speculate on on what I think one of the And you and I have neither experienced divorce, so we don't even understand that angle from a personal point of view. No, so it's, I think it is hard, but one of the things that I will say is I feel like there is an experience of attractive popular women that is horrifying. Um, yes. In the in the fact that you are not seen as a person. Yeah. You're not treated the same. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants something from you. So whether you're, you know, whether you're interacting with men who most of them would want, you know, yeah. what men want, mm-hmm. or you're interacting with women who are jealous of you or, you know, or want their status elevated by being around you. Like, how many people, I don't know if you, I probably spend more time on Instagram than I should, but like the number of women who post pictures with other really attractive women to kind of like, it's it's obvious what they're doing. <laughs> like it's, hey, look, status, right. status, status. Looks are a huge factor mm. in status. Like, let, let's mm. just be honest. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't think like the really popular girls, I mean, then this, I'm at a disadvantage here as well because <laughs> I never went to high school. So, sure, right. 
Um, I never had that same experience at all. But my, you know, academic objective outside of that read of it would be, mm. I don't think that really unattractive people ever become the super popular girl, right? <laughs> and yeah, they so, do seem quite correlated. So, so I think the issue that you would face is a similar issue to Brian in some ways, which mm. is people stereotype you and they don't get to know you mm. they get to know that projection of you or yeah. the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. you know skin deep blah 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 blah. none of these insights are interesting um <laughs> i think she, yeah she's like she claire is the kind of person in high school who like maybe you see her a couple minutes a day in the hall but everyone will talk about her yeah right yeah and so then she being halfway intelligent, realizes that, internalizes it, and then it's this weird feedback loop where, like, she acts in the way people think she should act. So it, the perception of her becomes what she thinks she needs to be, but obviously perception is fickle. And she knows that there's something else going on and, and that she's suffering and feeling pain, but but she feels like others won't even... Um, acknowledge that mm, pain but at the same time her popularity is a little bit intoxicating to her like she does kind of get a high from it even though it's short-lived and and uh, ethereal and unsubstantive but she still kind of likes it in the way that people kind of like the superficial things that come their way that are to their benefit uh in the no, same way we like candy don't, don't or all, right? good yeah. cereal or like uh you know uh, um, lucky charms more than <laughs> shredded wheat kind <laughs> of thing oatmeal right yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> it's kind of complicated, but she is aware of the fact that she kind of enjoys it, but it's also papering over the things that, if she's really honest with herself, are bothering her. But to talk about her parents' divorce or her feelings or the fact that she doesn't always want to live up to this perception would undermine that popularity because popular people aren't supposed to have problems, or like that's putting it most simply, maybe. So she's like kind of caught in this catch 22 of her own making, (laughs) but also of the, so like, she's just, she, I guess of the characters, maybe Andrew too, but she has the hardest time. It seems separating her psychology from the social psychology of the situation that she's in. And and of course, because she is gaining the most from the social situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's harder, like, Brian's most not superficially. giving anything up. Yes. Allison's not giving anything up. Exactly. She actually has something to lose in this scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, similarly, Bender's not giving anything up, right? <laughs> it's like she and well, other Andrew, than other than the esteem of his friends, which which are, is very important. Like, yeah. which I think that's yeah. one of the great insights, let's say, of this movie. Is, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. So I guess I just um. I, I don't relate to her situation directly. So all of my empathy has to be cognitive, which is still there, but it's not. I, I don't vibrate with her as much as some of the other characters in the sense that I actually went through some of the things they went through. Yeah, you right? aren't on the same wavelength as her. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I do feel sympathy for her in those moments where she starts to show some of that vulnerability and Bender's an asshole still. Because, you know, being vulnerable is hard. And... Bender is still on her case. It's like one of the most shocking things about it is like when the vulnerability hits and then suddenly they slap you in the face with this like toxic, like (laughs) 
reaction to things. You're like, oh, like it's off-putting. Yes, yeah, it is. It's a hard scene when Bender does that again to Claire after she does the lipstick. Yeah, with her that is a hard kind of thing. Scene. Yeah, because it's like it. because that's like even though she's putting on lipstick and she's you know with her cleavage so it's a very adult themed type of thing to do it's like the moment where you start to see like the kind of person in her because she's showing something that maybe could be like she works so hard to avoid anything quote-unquote real but might get her to be made fun of which would lose her social standing then she wouldn't be as popular so when we see that and Bender still mean, it's very heartbreaking. I well, think. I guess, and here's one one thing we can talk about is that mm. there's a very high expectation that she 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 just lays it out, and Andrew does too. It's like you guys don't know what it's like to live up to the standards of these people <laughs> who are like holding, putting you on the pedestal, like yeah. like these other shallow the, people. The, <laughs> the expectations are high, yeah. right? And frankly, I mean, it's something to think about, right? Is that there's people who who decide that their context in which there is no expectations is a superior place to be because mm. they judge other people's expectations, uh. right? But if if you are actually in a world in which you know, you care about these expectations, <laughs> then it is hard. Right. Right. And like when your reputation matters or doesn't matter, that changes the game. Right. Okay. Well, you just made me think of a super loaded question that you do not have to answer. Okay. <laughs> However, I feel like I would be remiss in my job as a really true fiction <laughs> podcast host. If I don't ask you this question, do you see a similarity there between the perception and the people who are perceiving you and your experience in politics yes i was well that that, that was then because i was thinking oh, how could we talk about claire and now it's like oh fuck <laughs> yeah. right that moment i forgot about that yeah yeah though absolutely i think that part i guess i was thinking about it just in the high school context yeah yeah, but yeah. let's project it onto the adult world yeah right and you know so often people be like oh well, why do you care about other people's opinions of you and who should care and it's well yeah that's fine mm-hmm. if if you have nothing to lose. Yeah. Right. But yeah, if yeah, yeah. if you if you've built a life and a reputation and uh, a house in the sand. Yeah. Yeah. If you've built your your house of cards, right? Mm. Uh, you, you might like living in it. You might not want mm. it to collapse. And, and I've been learning a lot about this over the last couple of months, probably year and a half. Okay. It is so toxic to live a life where external validation is mm-hmm. is your your currency. Is, yeah. is is what you trade in because you are never in control of your own emotions right like you can go from the highest highs to the lowest lows so quickly just based on another person's comments yeah. or well i mean this might be too personal and you don't have to answer it's fine but then how are you marrying that insight with what seems to me like the inevitability of perception and and external validation necessary in politics well, I think once you understand a thing, you control it. Okay. Right? So if you understand that that, that is a facade, mm. because the, the emotional turmoil and the issue comes from when you are getting the validation from creating that image. Right. Or, or from that image. That mm. image is what's real to you. Yeah. But if you understand it's just a projection, right, and that that isn't what gives you value, that's just how you interact with the world. Mm. You, once you divorce those two things, you can actually have an and and you look at the people who are the best at this. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of my favorite quotes, Jim Carrey, like I I wish everyone would you know accomplish all their dreams and and get everything they ever wanted, and they realize that that's not the answer, mm. right? Yeah. Once people get there and they and they shift, it goes back to what we were talking about with process. Yeah. 
once you if you love what you do, yeah, 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 and become good at it. Mm. And enjoy the process of doing it as opposed to the outcomes of doing it. Right. That's happiness. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do. Like, that's probably one of the biggest insights I personally got from this podcast and would love to hear from people. But it's <laughs> it's been the... Yeah. The process-oriented life. Yeah. Like, living a life that that you love because you love doing the things you're doing every day, not because of what you're going to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And So, that's, I, I would say, how I've... I wouldn't. I'm not going to make some claim that I've reached the mountaintop. Sure, yeah, yeah. But I think that insight that I've had Mm. has completely transformed my relationship with myself. So it's. I like. That's great. So at this point, Claire needs like an actual role model or mentor to say something to her, like, "Hey, maybe try an experiment. On Monday, talk to Brian. Talk to Allison. Let your friends see." One day, see what happens. Because even if those friends maybe fall away, it seems unlikely that Brian or Allison, or now even John or Andrew would fall away mm-hmm. as for potential friends. And then maybe, who knows, maybe you see a slight dip in your reputation or the perception of you, but maybe you see a much more long-term upward curve of showing confidence in your own relationships and your own pursuits could be potentially popularizing (laughs) well and i think what i would say to her is look you have two options here Hmm. right you can you can begin developing an internal love for yourself that doesn't require external validation and if you develop that you will mirror that out into the world yes and you will attract the people who who feel the same way and the quality of your friendships yeah so Here's another thing. It seems to me that in this movie, the the conversations that these people are having with one another are not how they talk to their friends. Oh, no. They're not Definitely how they interact not. with the, the world, generally speaking. Yeah. And that's why it's so significant to them. Now, for me, I kind of brush that off because I'm like, well, this is how I talk to my friends. Mm-hmm. Always did. Right? Even in high school age? Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I was homeschooled. I, mm-hmm, right. I was reading Locke and, and Rousseau at oh, 12, right? And so, like... Yeah, that totally makes sense why you wouldn't have the same kind of, like, relational or emotional attachment to a teen movie. Yeah. Or a high school setting movie, right? In the way that, because I was homeschooled too, but I did go grade 11 and 12 to high school, so I did get that a little bit as well. So, yeah, oh, man, of course. <laughs> I didn't right? even think so, about that. So, all of my relationships were based, and I've... I have a good friend that I've been talking to about this a lot, but like mm. my relationships were all based on me and, right, right, and right. my passions and loves and authenticity and sincerity. Mm. So, so you got this more in your twenties. Yeah. Well, like I would say I went downhill a little bit and like had yeah. to like become harder and, and create a, an exterior right. that would protect me reputationally. Sure. But the internal me has always been the same. Mm. Well, just before we close the door on Claire, I'm reminded of two different songs <laughs> for this scenario. Again, Bowling for Soup has a song, High School Never Ends. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and it's just like a song all about how, you know, once you get into the real world, uh, it's like Brad Pitt is the quarterback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, who's sleeping with who? <laughs> like the gossip train is the same. For so sure. it's like, don't put your eggs in the basket of just 
changing a location will make other people more grown up. Well, <laughs> it's actually, it still has to come no, from within. Exactly. Well, and the great joke of politics is like the capital of a country is really just a big high school. Yeah, exactly. Like that's all it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the first one I ever heard in my favorite John Mayer song, that, that line, um, there's no such thing as a real world, just a lie you have to rise above. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> like that's kind of Claire's realization. Yeah. There's... The real world is these superficial people, and I just got to rise above it. And like, hopefully, that's what we're left thinking. She particularly, and Andrew, I think, will do. Yes, because they're the two most popular people of the. Yeah, they're the ones that have something to lose. But what they realize, I think, through the course of this movie, is the thing that they're holding on to isn't worth keeping. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty natural transition into uh, our thoughts on Andrew Emilio Estevez, the jock. So my first thought is he's a type A, right? Like he's that kind of type A masculine personality at the beginning of the movie that lets people who are being insincere with him still get under his skin. Like he lets Bender get under his skin, even though he has to know, and we know Bender isn't really believing any of the things he says about Andrew. (laughs) He's clearly trying to get him riled up. So he's a troll, right? Like Bender is totally trolling Andrew and he's only doing it because he know he can. And it's like um, Sam Harris has this great, little kind of mental heuristic or or analogy that he uses for when you fall into a trap socially it's like it's like these people are drawing a body outline on the sidewalk so that you can just go lie down and <laughs> right right <laughs> get yeah. into it right it's like yeah. it's like bender is setting a trap for andrew that's so obvious and he still falls for it anyway it's like what's his line um two hits me hitting you you hitting the floor <laughs> It's like he's such a he's a meathead. He's he comes across as a meathead. So I think that this is actually where I share the first 20 minutes of the movie. You're like, why are we watching this movie? Because all of these kids are fitting into their stereotypes. I think Andrew fits into his stereotype of the strongest or at least the most obviously as the jock meathead. So it's like, well, where's the value here? And I guess the value of Andrew is realizing that and this is a real thing that the pressure from his dad to be the best athlete, to be a winner, is destroying his relationships with other people. But And maybe most deeply, it's destroying his actual authentic enjoyment of wrestling. So this is what's so terrible about this kind of scenario. And I've seen it because I pl- grew up playing hockey. I saw it with people who played hockey. There would be guys I'd play with who, who love hockey who fell out of love with hockey because of the way their parents made them love hockey. Like, that's so tragic. And if we dig into that, I think that's just insecurity from the parents. Oh, yeah. Right? All, all that is is parents who are so... And I, I mean, I think both of us could say we had amazing parents in this particular mm. facet of their parenting. I never, from either of my parents, felt that the reason they wanted me to succeed mm-hmm. was to validate themselves. Never. Yeah. It was authentically because they loved me. Mm-hmm. And um, what you wanted to And do. yes, maybe, you know, um, maybe there was a desire to see me achieve all that I could. But it was never about them. Or I've never felt that. And I think that is a great gift that comes from parents with wisdom and maturity. Mm-hmm. But if you don't work that out, you don't suddenly figure it out because you have kids. Right. And let's say you're disappointed in your life and it hasn't gone the way that you had hoped and you haven't achieved mm-hmm. your dreams. Well, then your child becomes your legacy and they are your, they're that extension. They're, they're your second chance. Mm. And I think, oh, what a tragedy. Yeah. So, I mean, again, with taking your point about how the 
portrayal of parents in this movie are pretty one-dimensional. I saw the most, uh, from my own life, I saw the most like carryover of reality from Andrew's dad to Andrew in what I've seen in the world. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that, I think, but I also found him to be the least interesting character. Sure, yeah, I think so too. And it's not so much about him specifically, but what was good about him in this movie is that it showed that he wasn't a meathead. He actually was kind of smart and he had some good ideas, but he was, um, he felt the most destined of all of them, even more than Claire, I would say, because of how much more intense the pressure was from his dad. Claire was getting difficulty from her parents but it it, it wasn't like claire's parents were just being like go be popular or else no she <laughs> <Right>? just was <laughs> yeah right, she was right. popular her problem with her parents was about their divorce and the, like the insecurities are kind of but it's like with andrew's dad being like go be the best be a winner or else he probably felt the most trapped into his lane if as they say yeah now, right yeah and i think the great insight for him is that even the most trapped have potential for creating their own future and that was good for him you know yeah Yeah, i I see i see a lot of growth in him even by the end of the movie maybe even second most to brian Brian, yeah Yeah. so i just don't think there's that many interesting things to say about no i I agree he played he plays a role but it's probably the least interesting i mean it's just it's just like the beginning of the movie he sees the chalk outline of the jock that he's supposed to go lie down into and he does it and then by the end of the movie he sees the chalk outline of the jock and he chooses not to go lie down right right and that's it that's (laughs) good that's his whole journey yeah okay so allison here we go (laughs) the basket case weird Man, that scene where she makes that sandwich is it's for some reason it just eats I hate it. I just like Ugh. So Brian brings the most verbal humor. She brings the most visual humor yes. to the movie because she doesn't even really talk until halfway through the movie. She's silent. She makes this weird lunch as you reference. She's the archetypal like crazy or weirdo. Why did I like her? I I think so. I guess I kind of see in her of the five of them, and this might be weird because like ethically she's probably most similar to brian but i think actually in her own way of thinking about the world she's actually most similar to bender in the sense that she actually also kind of sees through some of this bullshit but she also hasn't figured out how to deal with it properly so she's complains about her home life i mean we don't get many details about it but essentially her parents ignore her yeah her parents ignore her she also knows that they're living a lie in the world presented to them by their peers and by the adults, but she still hasn't figured out how to transcend that yet. And instead of being the bender way, which is just to humiliate others to pass over that, she's kind of like, just, she feels like, what is her line? Like she just wants to run away. Well, my, well, my dad's way of, and my dad has a lot of counseling, obviously. Yeah. yeah, And a ton of, he's very, I think very psychologically insightful, but he, he says, there's kind of two directions that you can go as a person, and, and we all have tendencies towards homicide or suicide, right? Mm. And Bender is obviously, he he's homicidal in his tendencies, yeah. whereas she's suicide. She, she, she um, you know, is a black hole. She goes into herself, mm-hmm. and he lashes out. Mm-hmm. And that, so they're, they're two different tendencies. Yeah, to the yeah, same yeah, problem. yeah. Like if you imagine, if we're going to call, let's say, the void is what the adults are telling you to care about and what the peers are treating you like just the bullshit right (laughs) benders is to lash out at the bullshit 
and to be cynical about it, which doesn't work and isn't the proper way. And Allison's is to run away from it. But that also doesn't work because part of the bullshit is also in her. Well, right? and she's desperate for attention. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the things she's doing is just for people to pay attention to her, even though why she would want that kind of attention is beyond me. But yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess like at the beginning, we're led to believe she's authentically weird. And again, we'd learn maybe more it's an affectation so people will pay attention to her. Like I think both Brian and Andrew say that to her. Yeah. Like you're just doing this for attention now and she doesn't rebut them. I don't know. I guess why I liked her the most is because I found her insights to actually be the most grown up of the five of them when they were talking, which made me think she was actually paying attention to the world and was like a little bit heartbroken by it and didn't know how to mend her heart about it yet. And, and that was like part of her growth to me, which was beautiful, was like she's heartbroken about the world, but finding these other four actually is what's going to begin to mend her heart in a way that running away from it or seeking attention wouldn't, right? Because yeah. obviously she's got these awesome grown-up lines where she's talking about, well, <laughs> I'm a nymphomaniac. I slept with my therapist. But she only did that to open space for Claire to be vulnerable, to say she, Claire's never had sex. And then Alice says, I never did it either. I just wanted you to feel like you could yeah. admit to it. And I mean, there's a similar thing I do at work with the kids where I, I know I've told you this before, but it's like, I always behave in such a way that I'm the silliest so that no matter what a kid does, they're at worst the second silliest person in the room. So they f- feel that space to kind of open up in that way. Yeah. And, yeah. and Allison does something similar for Claire there where she pretends like she's an info and yeah, I slept with my therapist, whatever. And <laughs> they're just like, I never did it. I just wanted you to like feel like you could mm. admit to it too, right? Because again, there's also that status thing. But then, and this is again, maybe could be talked more about a woman in regards to sex. She says, if you haven't, you're a prude. But if you have, you're a slut. It's a trap. Yeah, I remember from high school, like, there's like, it's like a no-win situation for a young woman. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, oh, she's frigid. She will never do anything. Oh, she, she doesn't put out. Or, but then it's like, oh, she puts out for everyone. She's just, I was like, why is there any right answer no. socially yeah. to be found here? It's a trap. And so, again, Allison sees these things already. In a way, like, in a way that Claire and Andrew are blind to their <laughs> cognitive biases and the loops that they're in. And... Brian doesn't even know about the other people's loops and Bender is cynical about it. I think why I like, she she knows them, but she doesn't know how to transcend yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And But her inclination is to be kind to the others when they start showing their vulnerabilities. So I think I like that. I, th- I just found her the most kind out of the five of them. And also we have to talk about this line because I think it's, uh, to me, it was the most arresting line of the movie personally. And it's um, when they're talking about, oh, well, as she mentions about sex, it's if you love someone, it's okay. I was like, okay, there's some real big wisdom here. <laughs> right. There's some wisdom here to be talked about. But also her line on being like your parents when you grow up, it's unavoidable. It just happens. When you grow up, your heart dies. Huh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I get, yeah, she's my favorite because she has these insights, but she's still a kid and doesn't know what to do about them yet. And I feel like that's like part of my nurturing side, I think, comes out with her a little bit more than the other ones because I was like, oh, you are so kind and you want something good, but you don't want your heart to die, (laughs) you know? 
And and like that's kind of my life. How do I make it so my heart doesn't die? So I keep this because basically what they're talking about when they're talking about becoming like their parents is becoming cold to the things that they care about now in their flush of youth and their passions. And as you know, like I am supremely motivated by the passions I've had from yeah. my adolescence yeah. and I'm trying to figure out the way to not lose them as I still am a mature adult, whatever that entails. And I, and I see that kind of kindred spirit in her, I guess. I like that. Is, is like, Oh my gosh. Cause she, right after it's like, well, who cares? And she said, well, I care. <laughs> it's like, yeah. she cares. And, but she's, I don't know, like this combination of she cares, she's heartbroken. She's, she's knows what's going on, but she doesn't know how to fix it yet. But her inclination is to be kind to others. And all of those wrap into, I can overlook the weirdness. Right. I don't have a problem with I th- I I think it's that she decides to be disgusting. Oh, right? okay. It's like the, Interesting. The yeah, cuz I didn't right. The like chewing on her nails, like she purposely does things that are just I don't know. To me they are they they cause disgust. Oh. And then I'm like, "Oh, why are you?" And you know and she knows that that what she's doing is disgusting to people. Well, she's doing it on purpose. For yeah, and I just ugh. I don't know. I don't like that. But I guess on another note, you do see that she has a good heart. There's that one scene where they're they're standing in the hallway and Andrew wants to go one way and Bender wants to go the other. Yeah. And she kind of looks at him like, at Bender. It's like, come on. Come with us. You got to stay as a group. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Which you just see the caring. No man left behind. Yeah, the caringness in her that she, she cares probably more about each of the people individually to some degree than anyone else, right? Yeah. And I, I agree. There's, I like what she transforms into, but what she originally comes in as, I'm like, <laughs> I guess I find it the hardest to have empathy for that. Yeah. Um, people who Makes are purposely sense. antisocial, and that becomes their identity. Well, I wonder if she's like that earlier in the movie because she's wary. Well, remember, her- she did. She came to detention because she had nothing better to do. <laughs> right. Like, she's weird yeah she is weird but i I don't know like i'm trying to figure out why she was that way at the beginning and i I wonder if it's something like she because like her her great sadness i guess is that she's planning on running away like her plan is to just leave this place leave her family like in the similar that we talked about maybe like peggy from fargo she wants to she feels like the goodness of the world is somewhere away from here yes and doesn't want to bring any of it with her and maybe that's part of it is that she's so on one on this on the first layer she's being disgusting so that (laughs) i mean this is crazy to say it this way but she's being disgusting so that when she runs away no one will follow her maybe (laughs) right like she's like making sure that there's no attachment but even at that deeper level then she's only there when she doesn't have to be because part of her realizes well she wants to be followed by someone because the truth is she actually does care about people yes and she's devastated by the fact that she feels like she's in a situation where no one cares about her and it doesn't matter if she cares about other people or not yeah and then her blossoming I think is when she starts to see how especially Brian, but also Andrew are starting to come out of their shells. Yeah. And so it encourages her to actually pursue the things that she cares about, which is again, maybe more indicative of youth, like not being confident in your own beliefs yes, and your own thoughts about the world. Well, maybe the tragedy of her is that soul 
it's so long for mm-hmm. connection and camaraderie and yeah. friendship and that yet has not been able to understand that really the only way to get that is by reaching out mm-hmm. right and yeah. and instead of instead of um focusing in on yourself and kind of collapsing in on yourself you have to right? she doesn't she just despises herself mm-hmm. and so really until she figures that out she's not going to be able to yeah exactly to get those friendships and that camaraderie that she longs for because everyone else has something that they love about themselves mm-hmm. right bender loves that he's hard and cynical <laughs> like i mean as yeah, weird yeah, as yeah. that sounds andrew loves that he's tough it's maybe malformed love or inappropriately <laughs> you know yeah right you know what i mean yeah yeah no i agree and so maybe it's something like she is super insightful about the other four and kind of has a blind spot about herself. Yeah. And the blind spot about herself, because she is so kind ultimately and and friendly and wants good things, once she starts to see it blossoming in the others, she starts to see it in herself too. And that's why she showed up in the first place. Yeah. Like that's actually what she was looking for. She's looking for community. She's looking for someone to love. She's looking for love. She's looking for connection. And she doesn't know that because she thinks she wants the opposite. And she thinks she wants the opposite. I don't know. Maybe because she's 17. Yeah. And kids don't know what they want. (laughs) Exactly. People don't know what they want. Yeah. So I liked her journey, though, because her insights to me were arresting and she seemed the kindest. Right. Out of them. And she was kind, so kind to Claire in an opportunity where Bender chose to not be that way. Which is funny because I compared the two of them together, right? I so resonate with that line. I care. I don't want my heart to die. I want to keep the youngness of my heart alive as I grow, right? And to me, that's like the great project of life, how to keep the passions of your youth alive and grow so that they're youthful but not juvenile as you grow. Well, and like keeping that childlike wonder, Mm, right? And that appreciation of things and the excitement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would be a philosophical distinction between youth and youthful joy and youthful passion and juvenile passions, right? Like um, why I can love super bad, but not just for the juvenile parts of it. No. (laughs) It's like try to, or South Park, like try to find the better, higher, more like what is it the joy of star wars that i get but not just like the dumb cheesiness of it (laughs) you know like separating those two strands is really important to me and i think it's important to her too in her own way right so that was why she was my favorite so i want to talk about the actual end letter that brian writes because i think it's actually the point of the movie uh or like from john hughes perspective right and so It starts off at the beginning. You see us as you want to see us. And he's like a nerd, a jock, a princess, a misfit, and a basket case. And he kind of reiterates that at the end, writing it, because it's a voiceover. It's Brian's voiceover reading the essay Mm. that he wrote to Vernon. But it was kind of cool because at the end, he's like, we're all a bit. And then each individual character speaks the part about themselves. And so the insight from Brian that they all kind of find is that actually there's a bit of all of them in each other. So it's like so stupid to break off categorically that way because Brian realizes he's got a little bit of Andrew's anxiety in him. He's got a little bit of Claire's he's got, and Bender realizes that he does have a little bit of the desire to be popular, (laughs) right? Like he is, he's like Bender part of Bender's realization. He's a little bit jealous of Andrew 
because of how popular he is, right? Claire is a little bit saddened that she can't be weird like Allison. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a part of her that wants that. So it's like not these major categories, but the great... And this, I think, was probably revelatory culturally in 1985. It came out as like, no, these people who seem so different are obviously a little bit similar. Like there's parts of each other that are in each other. So anyway, that's the insight that Brian has. And I, I resonate with that so deeply because I also felt that way in high school. I, I liked to quip, and it wasn't untrue, that I had a friend in every group. Like I was able to get along more or less with someone from every group in high school. I could hang out with the preps. I could hang out with the bikers. I could hang out with the redneck. Like I just had that chameleon adaptability. It was because I didn't see them that way. Like I communicated it that way, but I didn't see people that way when I was in high school, which is why I was like so omnipresent in different groups of people, right? I mean, this is an indictment not only on Vernon, but on culture, I think, is like, look, you see us as you want to see us. So we have no, we don't see the need to justify ourselves to you. We are all a little bit of this, and that's how it is. <laughs> so, right. Hmm. I guess there's two parts. The self-realization that Brian articulates. It's like, look, I'm a little bit like all these other four people. There's a part of them in me, and and that's great. And I'm glad, maybe, thank you for putting us together. We found that. But, it's like, but also to Vernon, like, I don't see any need in justifying myself to you because you are part of the thing that's making me feel like i'm supposed to be different from these people anyway (laughs) yeah and i guess for me and fundamentally why i don't connect with this movie Mm. so i just don't don't find that to be an interesting insight i'm like well of course right like sure but again i think it's like because when it came out it wasn't yeah present and and also i think like it's just I never had that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I you never, have a unique trajectory. It was not a, it just wasn't, it never played any role in my life, mm. right? The thinking, oh, like, what group do I fit into mm. was never a part of my thinking. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, my hypothesis would be that you're more of an outlier. Oh, I think so. In the, in no, 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 I agree. I guess, like, I'm only talking from my personal Yeah, exactly, yeah, right? yeah. But I guess I think that's why I didn't connect with this movie mm, in the way that other people do. Yeah, 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 that makes like, sense. When I watch yeah. it, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course people are individuals with complex realities, and, like, <laughs> that's how I've lived my life, yeah. right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, like, I mean, a, a great example is when I was working in, in Ottawa, I befriended... Uh, a very strong NDP staffer who like is right. like hugely committed to you know all of the things that uh, you know socialists are <laughs> committed to, and then one of my best <laughs> friends was like a a high up liberal, right? And it was never it was the people that I loved, right? Never the um, never the moniker under yep. which they or the identity under which the world saw them. Well, you skipped a, a painful yeah, step of human social evolution. <laughs> so thanks, Mom, for, for homeschooling me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess it's that combination of how deeply resonant that message is and how original it was in The Breakfast Club. Yes. As opposed to other movies that I think psychologically under the surface has kept it well, vital I think it's for probably people. a realization that a lot of people don't have because the social pressures exactly are so intense. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guarantee that if I had gone to high school, I would have 
fallen because I know myself yeah, well right. enough now to know I would have fallen into it hardcore mm-hmm. and that my identity would have been tied to <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I think that's a good little transition then because the last little bit I wanted to talk about is like that's internal to the movie and the motifs and the culture. I want to talk some of what this movie does as culture because it's like so i mean it even starts with the david bowie quote right of of you know youth of the nation type of thing one of the reasons i think that this movie is so embedded in culture is that the the snappy teenage dialogue is so good some of the content is really dumb but do you notice how like the way that they talk to each other it just kind of keeps going Right. right? Like, it's not like, oh, okay, here's a shot. Say what you think. Okay, here's a shot. Say what you think. There's no, like, direct transitions from topics. It's just it's like, okay, we're going to put the camera on and just start talking. Right. And, like, yeah. that was so reminiscent to me of teenage life. It's right. like just rambling yeah. conversations with people, maybe slightly under the influence of some sort of substance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just, like, um, they, they just so captured that in this movie. Right. Yeah. I loved that. And I think that that's part of the cultural significance it's maintained. Here's an interesting one that we talked about a little bit before. And so it's Vernon's big insecurity, I guess, because he's obviously got one. He's worried about what's going to happen when the kids (laughs) in the movie run the world. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, we happen to be in a situation where this is the case (laughs) because it's set in 1984. So if those kids are 18 in 1984, it means that they were born in 1966 or 67. So that means that they'd be like 52 or 53 now, or 53 or 54 now, which is like around the age of the people who are CEOs or yeah, <laughs> high up show, in stuff yeah. and run the show. So it's like, these are the people now. The kids in this movie are running the world now. Yeah. Well, I so mean, what, I think... what, what do you think <laughs> is, what do we make of Vernon's fear? I really highly recommend the book, The Fourth Turning, because I think it, it it's a book i mean maybe some people consider it pseudoscience i really don't mm. but it's it's all on generational theory and how how one generation raises another generation impacts how they raise their kids and it, right. it's a cycle it's a seasonality and, and a cyclical thing according to the fourth turning uh, generation x is the nomad generation right they're mm. the 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 latchkey kids I mean, and that's that's well exemplified in bre- the, in Breakfast Club. Hmm. They're the neglected generation. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. the they're the aborted generation, hmm. right? Like the legalization and perpetuation of abortion was a that's that's them, hmm. right? They were the unwanted generation, hmm. and uh, and they know it, and hmm. they're they're kind of like the in and the in between generation, and so I think they run the world in much the same way they lived their lives in massive insecurity and full of complexes Mm. they don't have a a good understanding of themselves so how can they have a good understand or how can they have a vision (laughs) for the future right i mean that would be my synopsis of that generation i'm I'm not a fan of that generation (laughs) i uh i don't i'm glad i'm not right a part of it Uh, my friends that are a part of it don't like being a part of it Mm. interesting yeah yeah, I guess it, what the, the the forgotten generation. <laughs> well, there was one earlier, that, but yeah, essentially they are the. And there's also a problem that the boomers are still holding on to power. So if you look yeah, at yeah, yeah. Um, the people running for the for president, or the people like yeah. this has been a cultural touchstone, and everyone talks about it, but it's almost as if Generation X gets skipped, mm. right? Yeah. So they don't even get to run the world mm. because yeah, the boomers yeah, yeah. are holding on, and the millennials are coming up. And both are more 
sure of themselves, passionate <laughs> people who aren't going through the necessarily, I'm not saying they aren't having teenage years, but they didn't have the same existential problems with themselves because right. parenting, parenting is so important. And this was a generation raised by bad parents. Mm. Well, I not w- okay. I'll take, I, let me take a step back there. That was a, maybe a little bit extreme. This was a generation raised by narcissists. Mm. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, that is the definition of the boomer generation. Sure. They're they're consumed by themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and (laughs) I'll give the the nice side of the coin then for Gen X in this sense is that I was thinking about this a little bit because of, you know, my attachment to the 80s and culture. I realized thinking about it, most of the things that I love culturally um, not all, obviously, but most of them happened to be made by people who were born in the 1970s. So South Park, right. made by people born in the 1970s. A lot of the music I love, Blink-182, Jimmy Eat World, those bands, the bands that were in their 20s and, and early 30s in the 2000s, these are people born in, this is Gen X. Like Gen X made most of the art and culture that I personally love, which means something, I don't know exactly what it means, but it means that there was something in their geist that I that, that I'm attached to. to. Yes, yeah. I mean, for example, for a future episode, we're we're starting to read Infinite Jest. Mm-hmm. This is the Gen X Bible. Yeah, like, <laughs> basically, right? It is the and it, I'm it's their magnum opus, and I'm floored at the insight and the ideas in it. I mean, John Hughes himself, would, I guess, would have been an edge case between Boomer and Gen X. I'm floored at the art. That was made by this generation. Well, I mean, like, this is the great thing about generations mm. like this is because they, I mean, suffering yeah. produces, I mean, the best art is all produced through suffering mm-hmm. and, and through, a, because suffering is kind of like the cold water in your face that makes you wake up to reality mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, comfort will never do right. or even blind ambition or any of those things mm-hmm. because like, and, and this is. I mean the the you know the gap generation the middle the middle children of history yeah they're the ones that have to think about these things because they don't have as much to do frankly (laughs) like yeah and I mean I say it kind of tongue in cheek but also it's true that why didn't I pursue a career in music why am I not a rock star and I say well because I'm not fucked up enough (laughs) (laughs) I'm not messed up enough yeah but you think about like you know Kurt Cobain or all of these other gen x musicians that just have tragic stories bradley noel from sublime like just the people who overdose the people and even now like <laughs> during this quarantine i've been um just loving these uh quarantine videos by the band goldfinger yeah it was like okay all these guys are born in the 70s <laughs> like yeah, this interesting. is this is their general that's so, a really interesting insight because so like i'm like well what what is going to be the and then of course you're looking at and I mean, obviously the mediums are different, but I look at the art now, especially musical art being made for the kids today, and they're generally being made by people now born in the 1990s. Yep. Right? Like the, yep. like the, most of the stars now are born in the 90s. And I'm just like, this is so different. Like the themes of the songs and the kind of presentation of the music videos, it's like, this is 0% like the ones I remember. But we've also <laughs> we've also seen a, a a big change in culture like that has mm, never yeah. been seen before ever with tech and that's choice. Oh yeah, so yeah, much right. choice. So we actually see a tribalization of art. I think, like yeah. for example, the art that I love. Actually, I would say most of the artists that I love are. Born that's in another the- thing. Everyone saw Breakfast Club. Yes. Right. Re- exactly. That's not going to happen again. Right. Yes. Right. Other um, than in, like Avengers. 
Yeah. <laughs> it, like it has to be huge yeah. and and so watered down in meaning right, right. and and so like mass appeal that it doesn't have that maybe well like there's great books uh, on this but one of the things is like all of american culture used to watch beverly hillbillies right. like we're talking yeah, it didn't yeah, matter yeah. if you were rich or poor you watch that now the choices are so endless that you you can actually be like anything else in the modern world you become specialized in your taste mm-hmm. so for example i don't even listen to the music generally speaking and i know that this is the same for people younger than me and older than me we all have our niche oh of course right yeah. and then and that was not the case when these artists of the 70s came out and mm. were big yeah uh they're like the kurt cobains the people you're yeah. talking about yeah they had more universal appeal. Everyone knew who they were. But like many of my favorite artists, people just have no idea who they are. Yeah, like uh, art and culture is so much more fractured now. Exactly. Yeah. There's a huge fracturing. Yeah. And I think, so that's something to t- to note is that I don't think there is a, a unifying culture anymore. Mm-hmm. In a way that there might have been more yeah. when we were kids. Yeah. Just because Oh, for the... sure when we were kids and then even more so. Like Bob, right. there will never be another Bob Dylan. Yeah, I don't think mm-hmm. because there's never going to be that level of mass appeal. Well, I shouldn't say never. Anything can happen, but <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, <laughs> like there's not going to there's not that level of mass appeal mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, well, that's fair. I mean, I, and I guess I I take your point with the uncertainty of leadership. Maybe I mean <laughs> we're castigating. <laughs> Gen not, X here. If we, I, I've been, I've been. I will admit, I've been really hard. If I any, just, if any Gen Xers are uh, totally <laughs> uh, horribly offended by now, well, I guess we did our job. <laughs> but I'd love that perspective. But I, I just, there's definitely a deep connection between the art that you and I grew up with and the experience of people who grew up in the 60s and 70s yes. and 80s, right? Well, and that's so. the interesting thing about generational theory, right? It's like the mm-hmm. the influence. There is a reaction to right. the generation before. So yeah, Gen X yeah. was reacting to the boomers. We are reacting to, to <laughs> the <Gen> boomers. <laughs> well, and, well, yeah, I'm, that's the funny thing. Their yeah. influence overshadows and yeah. our influence, like the things they would write about millennials all our lives. Yeah. Like they weren't writing about Gen X. Yeah. yeah they were yeah. writing about us. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so funny. So anyway, just more to think about there, I think. There we go. Last couple thoughts. Uh, we hit on this a bit, but I love how they open up to each other. It's like, to begin to think more about your life and others in it. And this resonated with me greatly because it's like late night drunk philosophical talks. Yes. And I really remember from being a teenager. So like the last kind of two things I want to touch on, I mean, they're important. They're very important. And so the first one is the simple mind song to me. It's as categorically connected the two breakfast club. And don't you forget about me as like, where is my mind and fight club. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, can you think of any other movies where it's just like, Oh, that, they're the same thing basically like hmm. that song i mean like a little bit power of love and back to the future but not the same no not even the same i really think you're right like the the connection between these two things is probably the starkest here i, I can't think of i'm sure if i put more thought to it i could but well i mean any time that song comes on it's inevitable that someone in the room is going to imitate the final scene of Breakfast Club, which is John walking away and just putting his fist in the air, and then it's a freeze frame. It happens all the time in movies. It happens all the time, like in real life. Like it's like, it's a meme. You want to talk about universal recognition. Like it's one of the few universal recognizable memes, maybe not for people 
20 and under well, now. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, like I'd say if you're 24 else. and under, you don't even know what the Breakfast Club is. Yeah, true. And that's weird. <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Then then that segue is really nice because I obviously as you know, I love music. It's I always say music was my first love. <laughs> I remember being like 4 and spinning around a chair in my living room <laughs> listening to music. <laughs> like it's always been and so I wanted to introduce, like, I guess not even introduce, but like some of the best experiences of my life have been concerts. You know how much I love karaoke. I would submit maybe as music as the last best great connector of people. And I think of two examples specifically. One of them, I actually had the, the privilege of being at the first ever Foo Fighters show in Korea. It was just amazing how like the last song they played was Best of You. And somehow everyone in the crowd knew it. And everyone's like arms are around each other and we're just screaming along with Dave Grohl. Thousands of strangers singing the same song. And then the second example I want to bring up is last summer, I went to a wedding in the Shushwap and it was a kind of Korea reunion wedding in that the couple I'd met in Korea and she was from Kamloops. And so like 10 of us from my city in Changwon came back and um, one of the great hubs of the city was the open mic nights that we did in Changwon and music and a couple of the people were from England and the groom is from England so Oasis is a huge thing and there was this hilarious ritual where whenever Oasis would be played either in the bar or on the guitar all the guys would take their shirts off is like the lad anthems they call right, it right. and so the last song I played when I did the open mic night with all of them is a Wonderwall I played Oasis just this whole wedding like well all the people who were there there's like maybe like 50 50 people all the guys take their shirts off all the girls who are comfortable take their shirts <laughs> off too and we just make a big circle and sing wonderwall to each other like people who are strangers the day before yeah. <laughs> right it's like i can't think of anything else that would do that, that would do that so with breakfast club and i remember i had a conversation with another musician in korea about this and we were talking about this song don't you forget about me and he was just like, yeah, there's something so beautiful about that end where it's like the la, 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 la part. And I was like, yeah, because everyone knows, well, obviously, <laughs> yeah, everyone can join in. Like, it's like the part of the song that everyone knows the words to and they can join in. And you, you feel this community, you feel this connectedness, you feel the thing that Allison is looking for. And I think this is part of why a grown-up version of me loves music so much. He's like, I can't think of anything else that connects people like music does. So, no. I've always said that uh, lyrics are my love language. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little spoiler for potential yeah. upcoming episodes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of three fundamental human things in mm. my mind. One book that well, I'd love you to read and hear your thoughts on is uh, okay. it's called, um, well, it's the King Killer Chronicles, but it's called Name of the Wind. And music plays. I heard it way. blows. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Had to. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> um i guess yeah the, the are are sharing a meal mm. singing a song yeah and telling a story right like those are the things that are are really humans that's how you bond mm -hmm. right and like growing up in in the church i i yeah, mean music I, I, is a huge music part. is yeah. massive right and 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 that's something the uh Protestants and evangelicals figured out better. Yeah, <laughs> way better. Yeah, get, get like, the music good. Yeah, get, get people together singing yeah. the songs. Um, but also like campfires, mm, getting the guitar right. out. Your dad and I singing together. Oh yes. 
I agree. Like, I, I guess I just read. Like, I can't think there would have been nothing else at that wedding that would get 50 zero all strangers zero to take off their shirts <laughs> and put their arms around each yeah, other. Yeah, no, zero things. Zero things. <laughs> Except Oasis. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, to me, there's a magic in that. And I, I wonder, I, I, maybe this is the deepest reason Breakfast Club is so culturally re- resonant with people is that there is, like, such a deep attachment between that song and the movie. So anytime you hear that song, you're going to think of the movie. And the end of that song is the definition of communal music. Everyone gets together and says, la, 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 la. <laughs> like, it's just, it's deep. It's meaningful. It's passionate. You're just like putting a, a, a this epitaph on this song. And then you're putting in, the epitaph on the song is an epitaph on this story, on this movie. And the epitaph of this movie is just like all of the ways that people have come together. Yes. Right? Yeah. So like there's all of this kind of like weird psychological intertwining of, oh, you thought we were different, but put us in the right circumstance and we can be brethren. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a, it's a, it's a, a hu- it's a, de- it's a humanist movie. Mm, right. Yeah. It's like. Exactly. Come together. And now. I mean, we don't have to get into it here. There, apparently, Molly Ringwald in 2018 wrote like an essay on how John Hughes didn't really stack up well in the era of Me Too. Oh, <laughs> and there's definitely a few scenes in Breakfast Club like that, right? Which, admittedly, like I was uncomfortable in those scenes where they're definitely like, "Okay, Bender, you're being a creep." Yes, yes. <laughs> That's not boys will be boys. That's like a borderline sex crime. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but like, just I don't know. John Hughes figured out something right he tapped into something in the zeitgeist of 1985 yeah uh, yeah he did pop culture sure he did well i mean i mean that's unquestionable i think like, yeah and and i and i just want to raise the flag of the deep connection between something like that and music you know that's like always that. that's the that'll be my hobby horse till the end of days it's like <laughs> right put a good song in there i we talked about it in the office like one of my favorite things of the office is just just randomly interspersed amazing songs oh the soundtrack yeah <laughs> it's great so yeah. Anyway, which is why one day I'd love to do School of Rock. There we go. I'm <laughs> but, down. I'm down. All right. Well, I think we did a good job. There we go. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And may the force be with you. May it be with you always. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>